Welcome to Redemption's podcast. This is Corey Ball, lead pastor at Redemption Community Church, found in Kirkwood, Missouri, in the greater St. Louis area. Before we dive into the content, I want to invite you to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook to stay current on all things Redemption. You'll find both of these accounts by searching Redemption STL. But more than anything, we hope that this podcast will help inspire and challenge you to take your next steps in following Jesus. If you have any questions about God, Christianity, or redemption, don't hesitate to reach out. You can DM us on our socials or text us at 314-391-4141. And now, without further ado, here is the content you are looking for. Enjoy. Well, hey everybody, welcome to Redemption. My name is Casey Jordan. I was reading an article recently and I, and I, uh, about, about really the peculiarities of American culture. Like there are things that are uniquely American, things that you won't find in any other country. And we just overlook them because it's the wallpaper of our lives, right? Like we just don't even notice it. But when people from other countries visit our country, these things jump out at them because they're, because they're so different. I want to give you just a few of those. First, yellow school buses. Only here. Only here. Uh, Direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising. In most countries, it's illegal for pharmaceutical companies to advertise directly to consumers, but we do it here. Uh, Let me give you another one. Red Solo Cups. Red Solo Cups are uniquely American. Um, In fact, non-Americans so associate Red Solo Cups with Americans that they use Red Solo Cups in their American-themed parties. Like, that, it's an association that they have with us, really unique to America. Um, let me give you one more that I had never even thought about until I read it, and, and that is this. The gap in public restrooms between the door and the floor, you know, that little, like, you know, two-foot gap or whatever, foot, foot gap, that is not a thing in other countries. Uh, they just put a whole door up that goes all the way, you know, ceiling, ceiling to floor, but we have the gap. Um, we have a lot of just unique unique things. And uh, the reality is there's exceptions to this, to these rules, right? But, but on the whole, these are American peculiarities. We're in a series right now called What's the Difference? And over the course of this series, we've been looking at the difference between Christianity and other major world faiths. And today, we're talking about two that are uniquely American, distinctly American. We started off our series uh, about four or five weeks ago uh, looking at the difference between Christianity and Eastern religions, specifically Hinduism and and Buddhism. Then we looked at Judaism, and then we looked at all things Islam, and then last week we considered the difference between Protestants and Catholics. Today we are looking, as I said, at two distinctly American faiths, and they are this. um, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as Mormons, and the Watchtower Society, better known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, Both of those faiths were founded here in the United States in the 1800s. And both of those faiths actually have a a lot in common. Uh, For example, as I mentioned, they're both distinctly American. They were founded here. Uh, They both had a charismatic founding leader. Uh, Both challenged the authority of the Bible as the ultimate source of truth. Uh, Both have a shared view of salvation. And to say the least, both have a pretty checkered history. So we're going to start by looking at uh, the larger and more influential of the two, Mormonism. Uh, When you think of Mormonism, a number of things might come to mind. You might think about uh, clean-cut young men in white shirts on bicycles knocking on doors. Uh, Maybe you think about the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Uh, Maybe you think about the state of Utah. Uh, You could think of any number of of things, but whatever comes to your mind when you think of Mormonism, you've heard of them. You've heard of them. Um, And today, there are 16 million Mormons in the world. 16 million. 
About half of them, 6.5 million, live right here in the United States, and 2 million of them, 2 million of those 6.5, live in the state of Utah. Um, Utah is a highly concentrated, has a highly concentrated population of Mormons. The reason that you see so many uh, clean-cut young men in white shirts on bicycles knocking on doors is because they actually have 65,000 full-time volunteer missionaries. It's expected that uh, young Mormons will spend two years as a missionary, usually right out of high school before going into college. So they have 65,000 full-time volunteer missionaries. Uh, let me give you a little bit of history, and then we'll get into what it is that Mormons believe. Uh, the Mormon church was founded by a man named Joseph Smith in 1830. Uh, see, Smith believed that the true church of Jesus Christ was wiped out when the Roman emperor Constantine became a Christian in 312. Uh, 312 AD. He believed that the, the church of Jesus Christ was just wiped out. And only through the Mormon church, and specifically through his leadership, was the true church of Christ recaptured and refounded. Uh, when Smith was 14 years old, uh, he claimed to have had a vision from God. And in that vision, God revealed to him that every, every world religion was wrong. Every world religion was wrong. And Smith, uh, years later, a handful of years later, uh, claimed to have received a visit from an angel named Moroni. Moroni, this angel, told Smith that there was a book written on gold plates buried in a hill near Smith's home in New York. And if he would go, uh, if, we, if he would get those, those gold plates, then he would discover uh, what it took, what it was going to take to recapture and refound the true church of Jesus Christ. A few years after that, he had another experience where the angel returned and brought the gold plates to him for translation. So that translation ultimately became the Book of Mormon. That's where the Book of Mormon comes from. Um, by the way, the word Mormon, the reason it's called the Church of Mormon, is because in, in Mormon theology, angels have parents. They're, they're not just simply created by God, they have, they have parents. And so Moroni, the angel who visited Smith, his angelic father was named Mormon. So the name Mormon, the Mormon church, comes from an angel named Mormon. So anyways, uh, these gold plates that, that, the, that Moroni apparently delivered to Smith uh, were said to have recorded God's interactions, God's dealings with the former habitants of America. This is where the American context gets really, really important because the Book of Mormon takes place here. It takes place here. And so the Book of Mormon taught uh, that, there were these, uh, that there were these people, uh, what, what we know as the Native Americans, were actually descendants of Jews who had migrated to America hundreds of years earlier. That's kind of the, the, the premise of the Book of Mormon. Um, Smith arranged, when he finished his translation, for 5,000 copies uh, to, be, to be printed and distributed. Um, but when people asked to see the gold plates that Smith had used in his translation, Smith uh, informed them that he had returned the plates to the angel and so could not produce the golden plates for anyone to examine. After the Book of Mormon was published, these 5,000 copies, Smith really began to gain a following um, of, of, of religious uh, seekers. And he set himself up uh, to his followers as their prophet. That was, that was the position, that was the, the role that he assigned himself. The first Mormon temple was established in New York in 1836. Um, soon after that, persecution began. Um, the Mormon church was, was heavily persecuted, and so Smith and his followers made their way from New York to Ohio, then Ohio to Missouri, Missouri to Illinois. 
the reason, the reason for the persecution was really uh, twofold. There were two primary reasons. The first centered around the issue of polygamy, uh, the practice of taking multiple wives. To the Christian culture of that day, polygamy uh, was immoral, indecent, and simply wrong. And, and it still is to this day. Um, for, for, for modern Christians, that is still not a practice we believe God has, has instituted. So that was a really big, big deal for them. Um, but the Mormon church not only, uh, not only practiced polygamy, but encouraged their members to practice polygamy. Smith himself was said to have had over 40 wives. The second issue uh, that, that led to this persecution is, is that the surrounding culture believed that this new religious movement was dangerous to society or even treacherous. It, it didn't help that Joseph Smith ran for president of the United States with the expressed uh, intent of setting up a political kingdom over non-Mormons. So those are the two primary reasons that that persecution broke out. Smith and his brother were uh, ultimately arrested and put in jail. And while they were in jail, uh, they were killed by a mob. And so Smith died when he was 38 years old. After that, a man named Brigham Young took his place as the leader of the Young Church. And it was under Young's direction that, that the Mormon church, this Young Church, migrated out to Utah. That's how they got to Utah. And it, keep in mind, this is in the early 1800s. So at this point in time, Utah is, is isolated. The West hasn't been populated the way that it is today. And so Brigham Young took his, his followers out to Utah really so they could avoid being hassled by the government for their, for their polygamous practices and, and some other, other things. Um, so that's how they got to Utah. And while they were there, they set up their own private university and named it after their second leader, Brigham Young University. So that's how they got out to Utah. That's kind of the, a very, very brief overview of the history. It's a really fascinating history if you have any interest in digging into it. Um, but that's kind of my, you know, 30,000 foot view history. So let's talk now about uh, Mormon theology. What is it that they believe? What is it that they practice? What exactly did Smith teach? A summation of Mormon theology is, is really found in their 13 articles of faith. I'm not going to go through all 13, um, but let me hit uh, some highlights. These are, these are a handful of the kind of unique ideas of Mormonism. So unique idea number one, you can become a god. Um, in Mormonism, you can become a god. In fact, uh, Mormon theology teaches that Adam, who according to the Bible was the first man created by God, is actually God the Father himself. That's what Mormonism teaches. Adam apparently lived as a faithful Mormon on another planet, and when he died, he was awarded with godhood and his own planet to rule and occupy and populate. And so what that means is today, uh, if you are a faithful Mormon, you can look forward to godhood and your own planet to rule and occupy and populate. Uh, one of their classic lines is this, uh, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may be. So this might surprise you a little bit, but um, Mormonism is not monotheistic. We talked about that word a couple of weeks ago. Mono, one, theist, God, those who believe in one God. Mormonism is not monotheistic uh, the way Christianity or Judaism or even Islam is. Really, it's polytheistic. They believe in many gods. And so that really puts Mormonism into more of the Hindu camp than into the Christianity, Judaism, or Islamic camp. All right, unique idea number two. They reject the Trinity. They reject the Trinity. Uh, Mormons do not believe uh, that Jesus uh, was God in human form. Uh, they do not believe that he is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, they, they don't believe in the Trinity at all. And, and this idea of the Trinity, that there is one God and he reveals himself in three persons, is, is, 
is central to Christian doctrine. It's taught all throughout the Bible, um, but Mormonism rejects that, that concept. Uh, instead, this leads to number three, instead they believe that Jesus was the literal physical son of God. And they believe he had a brother named Lucifer. If you, if you know who Lucifer is in the Bible, referring to, to the devil, to the satanic figure of, of scripture. Um, they believe that Jesus and, and Satan are brothers. And what they believe, remember, they believe that, that Adam is the God of this world. He's the God the Father. And so that means they believe God the Father has a physical body. So kind of carry this out. Jesus was the literal son of a union between Adam, God the Father, and Mary. So they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but not that he is God. They believe he is the literal, physical Son of God and his union with Mary. All right, leads us to number four. So they do claim, they do claim that we are saved by grace. So if you ask a Mormon, how, how, are you, how are we saved? They will say we are saved by grace. But, but they understand that concept of grace very, very differently than Christians do. Uh, they believe that the resurrection of Jesus simply ensures immortality, simply ensures that we will live forever. And so really what that comes down to is they're, they're universalists. They believe that all will be saved. But where you will be saved is determined by what you do. They don't believe in hell, but they believe in a tiered heaven. And so the worst of unrepentant sinners uh, will spend eternity in the lowest rung of heaven. They'll still go to heaven, but it's the lowest rung of heaven. Non-Mormons, but who, those who lived good lives, uh, will enjoy the middle rung of heaven. And the most faithful Mormons will enjoy the top rung of heaven, where they will be awarded godhood and receive their own planet. So it's a tiered heaven. Um, in order to earn this top tier, uh, there's a handful of things that you have to do. So remember, I, I mentioned where you go is determined by your works. So, all right, so this is, this is not a salvation by grace. This is a salvation by works. And in order to reach that top tier, you have to be a member of the Mormon church, be married to a Mormon, uh, you have to uh, keep their commandments, keep their commandments, and do temple work. On top of that, you also have to abstain from tobacco, caffeine, and alcohol. So that's kind of a summary of, of what you have to do in order to reach this, this top tier. Um, and that leads us into unique idea number five. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, when you die and you arrive at, at, at the moment of judgment, the person who determines where you go is not Jesus, but Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith decides if you've made the cut. He decides what tier of heaven you will spend your eternity in. Uh, Mormons also are led, uh, they're led by apostles, but their head, the head of the church, is uh, the president and chief prophet. So this president and chief prophet is expected to receive new revelations from God on behalf of the church. Uh, this happened at one point when, um, when the, the Mormon church was being persecuted for polygamy, and uh, the government was uh, withholding statehood from the state of Utah. The president at that time, the chief prophet at that time, came out and said, oh, God gave me a new revelation. Polygamy is no longer to be practiced here on earth, but we will practice it in heaven. And after that, they were awarded statehood. Now, if I can just give just a pause. I'm, we're going to unpack all this in a second. But if I can just pause here. Do you see why this could be problematic? Do you, do you see why this could be a, a, a challenge to the Mormon faith? What this means is that the president and chief prophet can change the Mormon doctrine and practice at any point in time. 
He can take back what God had earlier said. There's no stability. There's no certainty. Uh, there's no confidence that the faith that you enter into today is going to be the same faith next week. There's, there's just this, this lack of, of, of certainty. And here's the thing. If we believe in an unchanging God, and if God is perfect, if God is all-knowing, if God is all-powerful, then he's an unchanging God. If we believe in an, in an unchanging God, there's, there's no room for this. This is, this is problematic. And if I can be a little cynical for a minute, and I'm not a very cynical person, but this opens up the opportunity for changes to be made when they're advantageous or politically expedient, not because they're true. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let me, let me give you two more. Unique Mormon idea number seven. Uh, when it comes to the Bible, Mormons believe that the Bible is correct insofar as it has been translated correctly. Okay, that's fine. But the only people qualified to translate the Bible are their leadership. So they, they, they reject any other body of scholars. They reject uh, any other language specialists who know Greek and Hebrew, um, the, the primary languages of the Bible. Only their leaders can translate the Bible correctly. And then number eight, uh, they also have introduced new scriptures. So again, they believe that the Bible is true so far as it is translated correctly, but they hold the Book of Mormon uh, up higher than the Bible and then two others, Doctrine and Covenants, and the pearl of great price. So they've introduced three, three other scriptures on top of the Bible. And again, the Book of Mormon is their, is their highest authority. So that's what Mormons believe. Um, if you know anything about the Christian faith, you know that a number of these points raise, raise some pretty serious tensions with the Christian faith. They, they raise some, some pretty serious concerns. So let me give you just a handful here. Uh, first and most obvious is that you have a religion here that is claiming to be Christian. They, they claim to be a Christian faith. They, they claim to be a denomination of Christianity like, like any other. Um, yet what they are teaching and preaching is in direct contradiction to so many of the most foundational tenets of the Christian faith. Just doctrine after doctrine, idea after idea is just contradictory to Orthodox Christianity and to the teachings of the Bible. So that's a problem. That raises the question then, are, are they a denomination? Are they? Um, are, are, they, are they historically Christian or, or something else? Um, so the, let's kind of dig into this a little bit more. But the answer, I'm just going to give you the short answer now, is honestly no. Honestly, no, they're not. They're not a denomination. Um, they, 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 they reject uh, so many of the core beliefs of the Christian faith that we can't say that that's the case. Um, here's what confuses people, and this is really important. This is going to be important for Jehovah's Witnesses as well in just a minute. What's challenging is that they use the same vocabulary, but they're using a radically different dictionary. So when, when, when they talk about grace and we talk about grace, when they talk about Jesus and we talk about Jesus, when, when they talk about salvation and we talk about salvation, when they talk about scripture and we talk about scripture, we're not talking about the same things. We're using the same vocabulary, but we're working off of a radically different dictionary. And that's confusing. That means you have to ask a lot of questions to get to the heart of, of what exactly it is that, that's being agreed upon or disagreed upon in, in any given conversation. Um, so it, there's more to it than that. And the Book of Mormon, uh, as I mentioned, claims to be a written record of, of the previous inhabitants of America. So it records these uh, two civilizations uh, located on the American continent. According to the Book of Mormon, these civilizations died out around 400 A.D., so about 1,600 years ago or so, uh, which, uh, according to Smith, um, and that's 
pretty recent history. When you think, when you think about the span of human history, that's actually somewhat recent. The Book of Mormon also records that there were 38 major cities here in America that were set up and established by these two different civilizations, the Nephites and the Jaredites. Here's the thing. If, if there were such vast and mighty civilizations on this continent just 1,600 years ago with 38 major cities, you would expect there to be some shred of archaeological evidence. You'd expect even one of those cities to have been found. You would expect there to be some reference to the Nephites or the Jaredites uh, outside of the Book of Mormon. But the reality is there's, there's not. There's, there's not a shred of evidence, um, archaeological or, or written. Um, I'm, I'm going to be a nerd for a second. Uh, I subscribe to this uh, publication called the Biblical Archaeological Review. And every month in my mailbox and every day in my email inbox, I get updates on the various archaeological finds that are continuing to support the history of the Bible over and over and over again. Over, overwhelmingly, just daily, there are new discoveries being made that substantiate the history of the Bible. That can't be said about the Book of Mormon. It, it can't be said. It's, it's not there. It doesn't exist. There's, there's not a shred of evidence. Um, but it gets even a little bit more problematic than that because since the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, when, when Joseph Smith first uh, published it, there have been more than 4,000 changes made to the Book of Mormon. The Mormon church has changed their book 4,000 times. And that's why I pointed out that problem earlier with this idea of new revelations. It's ever-changing. There's, there's no stability. There's no certainty. What you're signing up for today may not be what you're signing up for a month from now. They've made 4,000 changes, which also doesn't make sense because remember, according to Smith, an angel named Moroni delivered the Book of Mormon to him, uh, this, this supposedly perfect book from God on these gold plates for him to translate, and yet 4,000 changes have been made. And if you, if you ask a Mormon about this or if you ask someone in Mormon leadership about this, there's not really a good answer. They'll, they'll write it off to these new revelations that it, it's, it's constantly changing, and that's, that's just what we believe. That, that God gives new revelations and he takes back what he said before and, and gives us new information. Um, but that's problematic. That's problematic. Um, Mormons also claim uh, that there were three witnesses to the gold plate. So remember, when, when Joseph Smith printed uh, the Book of Mormon and people asked him to see the gold plates, uh, he couldn't show them because he had, he had returned them to Moroni. According to Mormonism, there were three other witnesses, though. And if you look in, the, in a modern-day Book of Mormon, like if you, if you, get one, you go down to Barnes & Noble, get one today, you'll see that their testimony is recorded. But here's the problem. All three of those people have either left the Mormon church, have discredited Smith. Well, they're not alive anymore. But at the time, they left the Mormon church, they discredited Joseph Smith, or they denied that they'd ever seen the golden plates. And so the testimony of these three people has, has entirely shattered uh, the Book of Mormon. That, yeah, none of, none of this was actually real. None, none of this actually happened. Um, so, uh, and since there are no gold plates for us to examine, there's, there's no way uh, to confirm that this is, in fact, what, what Smith read or, or, or not. So, the reality here, in, in, in summary, is that the Mormon church is not, is not a Christian church. It, it's not a denomination like every other. Um, it, it's not just a different brand or a different flavor of Christianity. On point after point after point, their teachings contradict and deny 
even deny the foundational teaching of the Bible and what it means to be a Christian. So let's look at the second one, uh, the Watchtower Society, better known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, The Watchtower Society was founded by a man named Charles Taze Russell in the late 1800s. So a couple of decades after Smith, Charles Taze Russell enters the scene. And and really, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Watchtower Society, was was really a blend of prophecy and end times predictions. That's that's how it started out. Um, And they began by predicting the world would end in 1874. That was, that was their first prediction. Uh, as, as it developed and grew, as this movement developed and grew, it became more an, openly antagonistic towards Christian teaching. Uh, they rejected the concept of the Trinity. They rejected the idea that Jesus was and is God. Um, in fact, they've, they've really uh, become quite committed to talking Christians out of Christianity. Now, I'm going to be point, pointed here for a moment, but I have to be. Uh, If you're familiar with Jehovah's Witnesses, you're familiar probably with their witnessing efforts, their their door-to-door evangelism. And if you were to peel back the curtain and learn about the training process that that goes into becoming an evangelist for Jehovah's Witnesses, for the Watchtower Society, what you would discover is that these are uh, highly trained efforts to argue against and discredit the teachings of Christianity. That's what the training process is. And so when they come to your door, that, that is what they are trying to do. And so I say that to say they, they don't think that they are Christians, just so you know. We often talk about them as though they might be another denomination. They would say that they're not. They are actually actively trying to, to change uh, Christians' minds away from the teachings of the Bible, away from the teachings of Jesus, and towards the teachings of the Watchtower Society. So that's what they would say. Um, What you need to understand is that uh, for a Jehovah's Witness, the Bible is not the ultimate source of authority and truth. The Bible is not the ultimate source of authority and truth. The Watchtower Society is. The Watchtower Society is. And so, uh, by the way, they're only allowed to read Watchtower literature. They're not allowed to read other Christian writings. Um, They're only allowed to read Watchtower literature. So let me give you a couple of their uh, unique ideas. This is a little bit quicker than, uh, than the Mormonism one. Uh, but the first unique idea of Jehovah's Witnesses is that Jesus is actually the archangel Michael. Uh, they do not believe that he is God. Uh, he is the archangel Michael. So he, was a cre- he is a created being, an angelic being, nothing more and nothing less. Uh, second, they do not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, they, they deny that concept Entirely. They, they argue instead that he only appeared to have risen from the dead. Uh, third, the Holy Spirit, which in Christian thought, uh, in Christian theology, is the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In Watchtower Society theology, the Holy Spirit is not a, a person at all. Um, rather, this is just the biblical term, quote-unquote biblical term, for uh, God's impersonal energy force. They, they compare the Holy Spirit to electricity. So they deny his personhood. On top of that, speaking of the Bible, uh, they only read one translation of the Bible, and that is their translation. It's called the New World Translation. Um, They are not allowed to read uh, other translations at all. Um, I I do want to stop for a second and and point out something here. So the, the New World Translation was translated by five translators, now, usually that's a good thing. You want to get multiple people translating um, a book so that different people with different expertise and different knowledge can kind of come in together and, and, and we can produce the best translation possible. The New World Translation, five translators. 
um, because they were suspected of fraud, all five were brought up before a court of law. And in a, in a court of law, before a judge, not a single one of the translators was able to pass a basic Greek and Hebrew examination. Greek and Hebrew being the original languages of the Bible. They didn't even recognize the letters. They didn't know the Greek and Hebrew alphabet. So here's the thing. If you don't know Greek and Hebrew, you can't produce a translation of the Bible because in order to produce a translation, you have to have the original text, which in, for the Bible is Greek and Hebrew, and then you have to be able to translate those words into whatever language you're trying to translate into. So you can't have a translation without a knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. So this, this is not a translation at all. It's an adaptation of, of some other translation, mostly the King James Version, to fit their theology. All right, so it's not a translation at all. Um, and then finally, when it comes to the idea of salvation, they believe that only 144,000 people will be accepted into heaven. Only 144,000. Um, the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, so what happens, you know, when that fills up, which according to the Watchtower Society, it did in 1935. Um, so what happens to today's Jehovah's Witnesses? Those Jehovah's Witnesses who didn't make it into the 144,000 uh, will get to enjoy an eternity here on earth. They will not be in the presence of God, but they will also not be annihilated, which is what they believe will happen to those who were not faithful Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't believe in hell, but they believe in annihilation. So the 144,000 closed in 1935. There's still, uh, in, in, their, in their theology, there's still room to left here on earth to enjoy an eternity on earth. If you're not faithful Jehovah's Witness, you'll be annihilated. That's, that's what they believe about salvation. Um, but even getting into the group that stays here on earth uh, is not determined by grace. It's not determined by grace. It's determined entirely upon works. Um, it's kind of like Mormons in this, in this sense. I, I mentioned that there's, there's a lot of similarities between Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will say that they are saved by grace, um, but not by grace through faith alone. Um, rather, it's a grace that is received by works. So it truly is a salvation by works. You have to labor a certain number of hours going door-to-door -door, door -door sharing your faith. Uh, you have to sell a certain number of magazines and books every year. Uh, you have to attend five meetings at your church, or as they call it, a kingdom hall, every single week. Um, and all of that and more, hoping, hoping that when, when you die, you made the cut. But, but not knowing the side of eternity, not knowing with any certainty, not having any confidence or any assurance. Um, but by the way, if you don't work hard enough, or if you step out of line in some way, the leaders of the church can bring you up for a trial and take any chance you have of heaven or earth away. In fact, uh, the Watchtower Society disfellowships 70,000 Jehovah's Witnesses every year. Every year. Um, so that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and practice. Uh, today there are more than 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world and more than 1 million of them live here in the United States. Uh, as we said with, uh, about Mormonism, if you know anything about the Christian faith, you know that a number of their, of their teachings and a number of their practices are, are in direct contradiction with the teachings of Christianity and the teachings of the Bible. So let me just give you a, a handful of those. Um, one of the big ones is, uh, actually, I'm going to camp out on this. One of the big ones is, is prophecy. Uh, the issue of prophecy is critical to Jehovah's Witnesses. It's really kind of their claim to fame. Um, and here's why. Much of their growth as a church has come 
from predicting the end of the world and telling people that the only way they could avoid destruction was through the Watchtower Society. Not through Jesus, not even through God, but through the Watchtower Society. If you want to avoid destruction, you must go through the Watchtower Society. And so at many points in time, their numbers have grown because of these end-of-the-world predictions and telling people to come, to come join the Watchtower Society, obedience to the Watchtower Society. Now, here's the thing. It stands to reason that, that if we are going to prophesy on behalf of God, and it really is from God, then it would come true, right? If God is all-knowing, if God is all-powerful, we, we, can, we, can we could expect that prophecies made on behalf of God that are actually from God would come true. In fact, we see that in the Bible. God himself lays out this test for a prophet. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 18. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. So God himself in the Bible gives us this baseline. You want to know if a prophet is from me? See if his predictions come true. If they don't come true, it wasn't from me. So let me give you a handful of, of, uh, of predictions that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have, have made over the years. Uh, I mentioned the first one, that they, they prophesied the end of the world in 1874. Uh, 1874 came and went, and so they made a new prediction of 1878. Uh, soon after that, Charles Taze Russell, the leader and founder of, of the Watchtower Society, came back and said, no, actually, actually, the world did end in 1874. It just happened invisibly. And they made a new prediction that it would, it would end physically in 1914. 1914, of course, came and went, and then they predicted it would happen in 1925, and then in 1941, and then uh, a little bit more recently in 1975. Here's the reason I'm telling you this. This is heartbreaking to me. This is heartbreaking to me, because when they made the prediction that the world would end in 1975, thousands, thousands of Jehovah's Witnesses sold their homes, sold all their possessions, quit their jobs in anticipation of the end of the world. And then 1975 came and went. And there were thousands impoverished because they followed these failed prophecies. This is heartbreaking to me. This is absolutely heartbreaking to me. Um, what they have claimed were prophecies from God haven't occurred. And the Bible gives us, the Bible gives us the test. If it doesn't happen, it's, it's not from God. It's not from God. So are Jehovah's Witnesses in any sense Christian? And the answer is no. Um, and again, if, if, they, if they know their theology, their, their Jehovah's Witness theology, their Watchtower theology, they would say no as well. But we as Christians can get really confused by this because like with Mormonism, they use a lot of the same vocabulary. But like with Mormonism, they're working off a radically different dictionary. So no, they, they are not in, in, in any sense Christian. So there you have it. Those, those are the two American faiths. But I want to leave us uh, a little bit uh, differently than, than we have some of our others. Um, this isn't academic for me. This isn't academic for me. I've had these conversations. I, I have known and loved Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. This, this is just not academic. And so if you're a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, I want you to hear that. I want you to hear that. This, this is not theory. This is not theory. Um, but if you're a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, um, if I can say this to you in love, 
I don't think you know Jesus. And I really want you to. I really want you to know this God who came and became one of us and who lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we deserve to die. I want you to know that. I want you to know that with all of my heart, I want you to experience the freedom and the joy of following him. So please hear from me, no criticism, no condescension. Please hear me pleading that you would explore who Jesus is, that you would explore the claims of your own faith and the claims of Orthodox Christianity. If you're a Christian, if, if you're not a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, um, I, I want to I challenge you here. I want to challenge you to enter into these conversations with, with love and compassion. I, I want to challenge you to do that. I'll be honest with you, you might have some hard conversations ahead of you. Um, one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had in ministry was with a Jehovah's Witness. It was really hard. But these conversations are worth having. This is a matter of life and death. Eternity is on the line. So have these conversations. And I want to give you just a couple of things to think about as you enter into those conversations. Because here's the thing. This series, the purpose of this series is really twofold. Uh, first of all, uh, the purpose of this series is to help just really peel back the layers on the different world faiths and, and pose the question, do all roads really lead to the same place? And over the last five weeks, I, I think we've seen that, no, they don't. They don't. Uh, the, the major world faiths don't even agree on the destination. They don't all lead to the same place. But the second purpose of this series is to help equip us to be able to engage with our family and friends and neighbors who, who believe these, these various faiths, who follow these various teachers and, and doctrines and practices. And so I want to leave you just with a couple of really practical things to consider. First and foremost, uh, extend enormous enormous compassion to your Mormon and Jehovah's Witnesses, friends, family, neighbors. Extend enormous compassion. Don't look down on them. Don't be condescending. And that goes for every faith that we've talked about. But, but engage in that way. Uh, there's an author by the name of D.T. Niles who once said that evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're beggars. We have found bread. What we do when we engage in these conversations is we tell another beggar where he can find it. So engage with compassion and love and grace and patience and peace and calm. Second of all, ask a ton of questions. Ask a ton of questions. Really get to know uh, the, the, these family members and friends and neighbors. Understand where they're coming from. We talked about how both Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses uh, share a vocabulary with us, but they work off of a different dictionary. So ask a lot of questions. Ask them to define their terms. Okay, when you say you're saved by grace, tell me what you mean by that. Okay, when you say Jesus is your savior, tell me, tell me what you mean by that. Ask question after question after question so you can actually get to the heart of the matter and have a real conversation. And you don't leave with both of you thinking you're on the same page when you're not. Again, this is, this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternity. And then finally, pray for them. Pray for them. Most importantly, pray for them. Because here's the thing, you and I, we're not going to argue anybody into the kingdom of God. We're not going to. So pray that God would, would open their hearts. Pray that God would open them to your questions and to the conversation. Pray that God would give you the words you need when you need them and the wisdom to know when to say what you have to say. But pray for them. Redemption, as we wrap up here tonight, I want to leave you with uh, the words of one of the New Testament writers, a man named Paul. This is what he says. 
to the church at Galatia is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We have been set free from the burden of sin and we have been set free from the burden of works, of having to earn our way to Jesus. We don't have to earn our way to Jesus. He came to us. And that is the best news in the world. So redemption, as Corey always says, a church that lingers lasts. And I want to encourage you to linger tonight. Um, hang out, talk to someone. Don't forget your cards. Don't forget uh, to be bringing people uh, to our Easter service in just two weeks. Um, but let me pray for us and we'll be done. Lord God, thank you so much that, that you paid the price of grace. God, you, you paid the price that we could never pay. You, you, you upheld the standard that we could never meet. You lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't, and you died the death that we deserved to die, and I am so, so grateful to you. I can't wait to celebrate your resurrection in two weeks and the life that you offer. Um, but God, I just pray for the conversations moving forward out of tonight, out of this series, that God, you would help us to, to engage with people with love and compassion and grace and just point them continually towards who you are and what you've done because it really is the best news in the world. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray.